verse 10 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11. Inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, the good news, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. You may be seated at the reading of God's Word, and may we be blessed by the reading of God's Word. Amen? If you've been with us, we're going through verse by verse uh, the book of First Peter. The theme of verse of First Peter is this for us, that grace always overcomes disgrace. That our disgrace, that we are disgraceful people before the eyes of God, and we need a God to redeem us, and the way of redemption is through grace. So we've been looking at that. We've looked, uh, the, first two, the first three weeks have been these two ideas primarily. Thanks, Jared. Uh, the first two weeks were, uh, what it is, the first week was, what is our present state before the God of the universe? Remember that word elect, that God chose us from before the foundations of the world, wrote our names in the book of life, and said to us, Peter's saying to us, this is who you are today. You are chosen. He says it again in First, uh, in first Peter that we're a royal priesthood. And so Peter's reminding us in the moment, the first few verses, of our present state of being, who we are. Who we are matters for all of eternity. And so Peter sets the stage of that. Hey, remember who you are. So before we go any further this morning, this morning, who are you and who do you belong to? You are a child of God. Chosen before the foundation of the word. That is who you are in this very moment. You see, because then Peter's going to begin to tell us our future. And our future looks a little bleak if all we see is the future and we don't see the, uh, the eternal future that Peter is calling us to. And so in the next few verses, we looked at it last week, that there is this hope that is to come. There is an eternal future and there is an eternal thing going on in us. And so he's saying to us, hey, remember who you are in the moment. He's saying, hey, remember who you are going forward because here's what's going to happen going forward. He says that there will be suffering. We looked at that last week, that we have to find joy in our suffering. The way we find joy in our suffering is being reminded of who we are in the present. You see, that's how Satan wants to discourage us the most. Satan doesn't discourage us about our future. Satan is discouraging about our present. And this week we're going to look at, so Peter looked at us in the moment. He looked at where we're headed in the future. He gave us hope about our future. And now he says to us, but hey, we've got to take our present, we've got to take our future, and we've got to turn around and look at our past. You see, because in the moment of suffering, if I don't remember where I came from and who I belong to and how long it took to get there, then when the suffering happens, I get really discouraged really quickly and I want to jump ship pretty fast. And so Peter's going to walk us through, hey, remember where you came from 
even in the moment of your present, even in the moment of your current suffering, remember where you came from. And remember how you got there. And so this morning, the title of this morning's message is this, Remembering the Past Glories. Remember, let's remember this morning. And so Peter's going to walk us through three things about our salvation. Remember, that's what this whole book is about. Peter's going to constantly be reminding us about our salvation, both our justification, our glorification, and our sanctification. Remember, justification is that moment in time that you surrender your will and your life over to God. It happened in a moment, instantaneously. And God chose you to do that in you. And then there's the moment of sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ. And we looked at last week. Most of the time, God uses our suffering to produce in us our sanctification. He's going to allow us to go through trials to define us in our faith with Him. Our trials build our faith. I know I won't hear an amen for that, but there is an amen for that. Like God does use our trials. That is the promise. Every trial that we walk through, God is using for our sanctification, or another way to say it, is for our good and for His glory. The tagline, I will say it over and over in here. God uses our suffering for our good and for His glory. Because when we make it out of our suffering and we make it to the other side of our suffering, then it won't be us saying, hey, look at me, look what I've done. I've gotten through my suffering. No, we look and say, look what Christ Jesus did for me. And the moment we take the attention off ourselves and our situation and our suffering and all that's going on in us, and we point it back to Christ, a lost and dying world steps back and says, wait a minute, that's different. There's something going on in them that's bigger than them, and who is that something? It causes questions to be asked. But there has to be this moment for us, because I know it's true for me. I was telling the deacons this morning, the fastest way that Satan attacks me, I know this to be true, is through discouragement. And I begin to hear those voices, and no, I don't need to be checked in anywhere. You hear them too. You just might not want to be honest about it. Those voices that say, ah, is it really? Is that really going to be the outcome? Is that really what God's going to do? Do they really care about you? And on and on I go. Is he really going to heal me? Is he really? And I sit back and I think, man, when I begin to listen to that, I think, Man, is he? And so Peter's going to say to us, hey, in the moment of the suffering, let's be reminded of how we even got here. And so the first point is this. Salvation told by the prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit. See, even at the moment of your conversion, there was a story that took place long before the moment of your conversion. It took place back in Genesis chapter 1. Or, Gen- or John chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God was with, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Like, even before you and I were ever thought about, there was an author to your story. Even in the moment of those first few words in John or in Genesis, those are uh, arguably the, the two 
first verses of all the Bible. Uh, I know maybe not chronologically in the Word, but if you look at the chronological uh, orientation of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And so there was something going on before you and, ever, you and I were ever even thought about. We were thought about by somebody else. And so we look back at the prophets. It says this, a prophet was just a spokesperson for God. There are no more prophets in this sense of the word. The first prophet was Moses. The last prophet was John the Baptist. Because the prophets were telling of the Messiah coming. Therefore, we know we don't have any prophets today that are telling about that coming coming Messiah. That Messiah has already come. Amen? And so we look back at what the prophets were saying long, long ago, from Moses all the way to John the Baptist. And they had one singular message divided into three parts. The the message throughout all of God's Word, if you take God's Word from Genesis to the very first few books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the Gospels, that message has never changed. The, The prophecies have never changed. The prophecies have only been fulfilled, but they don't change. And here's the things that we see about what the prophets were telling us a long, long time ago. The first one is this. He prophesied about the Messiah that was to come. The first uh, prophecy, that you could take these in any order. I just put them in this order. The first prophecy was this. There is a prophecy of suffering. We see that in Psalm chapter 22. Let's flip over to Psalm chapter 22. I won't read all those verses. I'll kind of highlight through them about this idea. The the suffering servant or the suffering king, if you will. That we were going to have a Messiah, a king, a King Jesus that would suffer. He walks us through the suffering the psalmist does. Before Jesus ever came on the scene in human body, he was already on the scene. Look at the very first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? That comes from the cross. We see that already. The very first verse of chapter 22 talks about his suffering. He wasn't even talking about the suffering of the the beatings yet he took or the crucifixion. The suffering he endured is some suffering that you and I as believers will never endure. The forsaking of God the Father on the Son of God. You and I, as believers or unbelievers, will never experience what Jesus did on that cross. I'll say that again. As a believer or as an unbeliever, Jesus suffered in a way that you and I will never suffer, and that's by God turning away from him. If you don't know Christ, God has never turned away from you. You've turned away from God, but God's never turned away from you. And so he goes through and talks about all the suffering that takes place. Uh, Verse 14, I am poured out like water. That's talking about when he got jammed in the side with a spear. My bones are at a joint. If you think about that, 
Think about that connotation. His bones were out of joint. They say, uh, the, the theologians and the scholars say, hey, when you nail a person to a cross and you nail his body and put all the weight on those feet and in those hands, when they raised the cross and stuck it in the hole, think about the impact that cross had going into the hole. Bam. And in that moment, when it hit the bottom of the hole, it says that they lost joints, that their joints became out of place. I don't know if you've ever had something go out of place or out of, out of whack with your joints, it's not comfortable. A broken arm is more comfortable than your arm going out of socket. And in that moment when Christ hung on the cross, it's, it, most scholars think that his shoulders came out of place because of the sheer impact of it. He goes on and on and on to talk about the suffering that he endured. Over in Isaiah chapter uh, 53, 52 and 53, it's just a beautiful, detailed account of the suffering that Christ would take on the cross. We think through all that, that in that moment, the moment of his arrest through the moment of his death was nothing but a constant barrage of suffering. Isaiah chapter 53 says he was beat so bad you couldn't even tell he was a man. Now that's a beating. There's Scholars that say that when they took the cat of nine tails and whipped his back that much, it looked like hamburger meat was falling out of his body. When you think about the nails, it's not like two, two or three penny nails that you kind of jab in. It's these huge spikes that were driven through the hands and feet of our Savior. You think about the crown of thorns that they beat, they didn't just place it onto his head, they said they placed it on his head and then took a reed and started beating it into his skull. And that's the promise that these men are talking about. That salvation was told by the prophets and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The first thing, the first prophecy, if you go throughout all the Old Testament, is that we would have a king that would suffer. And so when you fast forward to the New Testament, we'll get there in a minute, when it says that we have a Savior that can, uh, has the same enmity with us, He knows all that we've gone through and then some. He knows our deepest pain. Not just because He's God, but because He's felt it. There is a suffering servant. Here's the beauty, though. There's two other prophecies that these writers talk about that the prophets talk about there's the prophecy of triumph turn with me to psalms chapter two you see if all we have is a suffering servant then we're in trouble we have to have a servant that's also going to triumph says this as for me this is God talking. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of decrees the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces. We have a Messiah that is going to and is currently triumphal over all things. Let me say that again. We have a Messiah that is heralded and it will trumpet all things even in the midst of your suffering. 
even in the midst of your sickness, even in the midst of your cancer, even in the midst of your children, even in the midst of your wayward children, we have a God, Jesus Christ, a Messiah, a suffering servant that doesn't just suffer, but he triumphs over all things. Amen? I need somebody to talk to me this morning. And the last thing, the last prophecy we see is this. We have a prophet, we have a king, we have a Messiah that is called a prophet who saves. He suffers, he triumphs, but oh God, he saves. Isaiah chapter 61 says this, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is on upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. Look at those three things it says that the servant will do, that Christ will do. It says that this, he will bring good news to the poor. It says he will set the captives free and he will bind up the brokenhearted. Bind up just simply means he's going to take all the pieces of our broken hearts and put them all back together. I love that picture, that God will take our broken hearts and mends it back together. The beauty is that though he it's mended back together, for me the most beautiful artwork in all the world is what we would call mosaics or what we call stained glass. If you think about a stained glass, a beautiful stained glass window at a church, all that's stained glass is a, just a bunch of shattered pieces of broken glass. And what did the artist do? The artist went one by one through every piece of broken glass and saw something that you and I could never see and began to put these pieces together to make this beautiful artwork. That's what God is doing with you in your brokenness. He's taking all of your brokenness and collecting all of your brokenness all of my brokenness, and putting together for a masterpiece. So that this way in Ephesians, that you are God's workmanship. What that means is God is the author, the perfecter, and the artist of your life, taking all of your brokenness, the things that you and I would say, how in the world are you going to do anything with us? He takes all those things that are just so disheartening and broken to us and puts it together, and then a lost world looks at it and says, Oh my gosh, there has to be a God. And it's through your brokenheartedness. And I know there's people in here that are brokenhearted this morning. But you didn't get the news you wanted to hear. That's a broken heart. The things are going on with your kids that you've been pleading to God for for years and think, oh, it's not going to matter. And God is saying, no, no, no. I've prophesied, I've been prophesied about that I will make all things new. We have a Savior. He is mighty to save. Amen? And so we see that. It says these things in verse 10 concerning this salvation, the salvation that we've been talking about, your re God's redemptive work in your life. The prophets who've prophesied about this, the grace, the grace is the salvation. Remember, we talked over and over. You did not choose God, God chose you. That's grace. He said, so I'm talking about this salvation, this grace. 
And it says that they searched for, inquired carefully about. If you continue reading, it says not only the suffering of Christ, verse 11, but the subsequent glories of Christ. Well, what is the glory of Christ? If we have a Savior that's suffered, we have a Savior uh, that um, has triumphed, we have a Savior that saves, now we have a Savior that's going to do three other things. Because if all that is true, if all that is that we had a, a Christ that suffered, a Christ that triumphed, a Christ that saves, if we don't have these next three, we're in trouble. And so what are the glories that are, are, have also been prophesied about Christ Jesus? Again, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's just three things. The first thing is this. The first glory is this, the resurrection. Oh, man, thank God, literally, for the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That's what Jared said earlier. We have a risen Savior. If we had no risen Savior, then we might as take this book, burn it, because nothing else would be true. But today, we look and we look in the past to the glories of Christ and His suffering and His saving and His triumph, but we look and we herald His resurrection. You see, every day ought to be Easter for believers. We have a God, a Savior, that is resurrected from the dead. That's powerful. The next thing is, it didn't just say that He resurrected we see that he resurrected from the dead in 40 days he spent time over and over and over you go to the very last chapter of luke and luke there's two disciples that are on the road to emmaus and it says hey he looked at those two guys on the road to emmaus and walked them through all the prophecies man what a walk that would have been And then at the end of those 40 days it says he not only rose from the dead but he now has returned to the father so not only is he God the Son, he's also now God the King. And if he's God the King, that leads us to the third thing. Now if he really is the resurrected King, he's with the Father, he then what? He reigns supreme over all things, even your circumstances. That God doesn't need a secretary to remind him of anything. He is sovereign and sees all things he is reigning over all things that means whatever you're going through it had to pass before christ jesus to ever get to you let me say that again it had to pass through christ jesus in order to get to you we see that in job remember job is a godly godly man and satan comes to god and says job's only a godly man because he has all this stuff and god says okay take all of his stuff but don't take his life you see that suffering that job went through came out of direct sovereignty of god god not only allowed it to happen he ordained it to happen for Job. God is reigning supreme over all things. Here's what one writer says. I, this, for me this week, has, man, it was like a shotgun to my heart. This is what David, uh, Peter David says. He says, Neither Christ nor his people received the crown of glory without the crown of thorns. Let me say that one more time. 
neither Christ nor his people, that's you and me as believers, receive the crown of glory first. You see, Christ wasn't glorified first. He suffered first. And then out of his suffering, what happens? The glory was put on to him, but it came directly out of his suffering. And so what would you, or what would I think that we would be any different than the great Messiah? We have to go through suffering to get to glory. I love that quote. Neither Christ nor his people receive the crown of glory without the crown of thorns first. If all you have is a crown of glory, you don't have much at all. And what does it say that these men, these prophets did about these prophecies? It says they did two things. It says that they searched for them and they inquired about them. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, it was that it was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully about. It's the same thing that happened to John the Baptist. Flip over to John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew, there's no book called John the Baptist. Sorry about that. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 1 through 3. This was a prophet, remember that. This was the one that said, hey, there's someone coming before me that I can't even untie their shoe. That this revelation of the Messiah had been given to John the Baptist himself. He knew the, the prophecy. And yet he searched and inquired about the prophecy that was given to him. It says this in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there teaching and preaching in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, that's his trial. I've never been to prison, but I don't want to go and find out. When he was in prison, that's the trial, about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples to say to him, Christ, the one he had already prophesied about, the one that he heard that was coming, the one that he knew to come, the one that he knew would bring salvation to God's people, the one that he knew would be resurrected from the dead, the one that he knew all those prophecies. And he says, are you really the one to come or should we look somewhere else? Even John the Baptist in his trials was going back over and over asking the question, man, is this really it? He was searching, he was searching, he was searching, he was searching, he was inquiring. Is that true for us this morning? In our situation, in our circumstance, in our trial, are we searching and asking those things about Jesus himself? Man, Jesus, it doesn't feel like it. Are you really the one? In the moment of my wayward children, are you really the one? In the moment of my cancer, are you really the one? In the moment of you fill in the blank, death, are you really the one? This gives us permission to search and inquire if God's really the one. That's okay. One man said it this way, Oh God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Just help our unbelief this morning. 
And part of helping the unbelief is asking the question. That's, that's the beauty of children. Kind of. Tennyson will ask the same question over and over and over and over again with no shame. Most of the time it's about toys. She's asking that question. Man, is this really true? Like, are, are you sure this is safe? Dad, are you sure there's nothing under my bed? Are you sure there's nothing in my closet? Are you sure? Are you sure I'm going to be okay when the lights are out? Are, are you sure I'm going to be okay when you leave? Are you sure? Are you sure when I get in the car I'm going to be I mean, she's asking that over and over. I'm like, oh, gosh, girl. Put you on Xanax already. No, I'm just kidding. But look at Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them and said this, Go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, when we ask Jesus the question, Jesus will always give us the answer. And part of the always giving us the answer, he says, hey, look what's already happened. And so for you and I, when we hear about the prophecies of God, when we see all these things, and then the crisis happens in our life, we tend not want to look backwards, we tend to want to look forward to know the outcome. Because if we knew the outcome, we could settle our anxiety in a moment. And Jesus says, don't look forward to what's coming. Look backwards to see what I've already done. Be reminded. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you've done that, and 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 you've done that. We've got to remind our hearts about all the activity of God, not just hold on to the promise that he has. Let's look back and see what he's already answered. And if it's true, as you, for us in this room as believers, he has done great works already in your life. If nothing else, if the only thing you can point to is your salvation, man, that is enough. Because you didn't save yourself. He chose you. And we remind ourselves as we look back, oh yeah, God, you took me from there and you brought me here. And so God, in this moment, I'm going to believe and trust that you can do it all over again and hold to the promise that you say you'll get me through it. But I'm going to remind my heart of how you got me through it the last time. The next thing we see, not only do the prophets talk about it, but salvation is preached by the apostles. He says this in verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you. That it was revealed to the prophets that this prophecy isn't even for you. Like This, this, this Messiah isn't going to come. The only one it came for was John the Baptist. All the other prophets never experienced Christ Jesus. But they knew in their hearts because the Holy Spirit had spoken to them, hey, this is for a generation of people that's going to come. But I need you to prophesy about it today for, for a reward you'll never really get. But you're going to prophesy about it for the future is what the Word says. So not only does the prophets talk about it, it was revealed to them for you, uh, in these things, in the things that have been announced to you through what? The preaching or the preached good news that was brought to you by the Holy Spirit. 
And so not only do we look at the prophets, but we look at the apostles and the apostles' teaching. We look at Acts chapter 2. Remember the moment of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came on to Peter and through the preaching of the, the Word of God saved a lot of people. It was the heralding of the good news of the gospel to people. This is what Paul says about preaching salvation to lost people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And when I came to you, brothers or sisters and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus, the one who had been prophesied, the one that he says, and him crucified. And I was with you in what? Weakness and in in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in what? In the demonstration of the Spirit and of its power. So that what? The faith not, might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So the preaching and the heralding of Christ Jesus doesn't rest on me, but it rests on the power of the Holy Spirit that is using me even this moment, literally, to proclaim the good news to you. But I have to go back to the Scriptures to look and search diligently to even be able to preach the good news to you. You see, I have to have the Holy Spirit in me to preach the Word of God to you. The same way that the prophets needed the Holy Spirit, the preachers need the Holy Spirit. Not only the prophets need it, not only the preachers need it, but the promise it's given to you as well. You have the same Holy Spirit in me as in you. It's not like I have some special anointing of the Holy Spirit because I'm a preacher. I promise that. The same Holy Spirit that resides in me resides in you. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That's the good news. So if God's using prophets, God's using pastors, God desires to use you through the Holy Spirit. But the good news must be preached to you. Ending with this. The last part of Verse 12 says this. Preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Salvation is observed by the angels, it says. Things into which angels long to look. Underline the word long in your Bible and look in your Bible. I'll get to those here in a minute. Here's the thing about salvation. We are are the only recipients of God's salvation. Not even the angels get that. Not even the angels get the grace of God and the mercy of God. And so the angels are in heaven, it says. The word look and the word long means this. It's this picture that the word look and long means this. One stretching his neck and bending over forward. There is in this moment, the angels are anticipating the salvation. They are eager to see it because they never get to experience it. And so the angels in heaven in this very moment as I'm teaching are overlooking all of creation with this longing and this expectation. Where's the salvation? When's it coming? Where is it? Let me see it. It's like when I take Tennyson to the zoo. 
She thinks those stupid meerkats are uh, Misha's cousins. She says, I don't know why she thinks a meerkat is related to a dog, but she does. But when we go see the meerkats, she's pushing people out of the way. She's like straining to see it. Like that's the picture. Like, man, she can't see it enough. Kind of like me with Miss Marilyn's goodness bars. I can't get enough, man. When they're there, my neck is going to be stretched all the way down uh, to, to the fellowship hall. But the angels, even now, are like they're bent over, straining, it says, like this looking, peering down on creation. You see, here's the gift of the angels. The angels have participated in all aspects of salvation except receiving salvation. Say that again. The angels themselves have participated in all the actions of salvation. Remember, who was it that went to Mary to tell her that she was going to be pregnant? An angel. Who was it that went to the open tomb to tell the disciples, hey, salvation's already been here? The angels. Who was it at the moment that raised Christ from the dead was there? Angels. Like angels have been a part of salvation all over history but they've never received it. And so therefore, there's such an eagerness, like, I gotta get more of it. I gotta see more of it. So even now, in the moment of our suffering, in the moment of our crisis, we look back. We have angels, the angelic hosts are peering at us, watching us through this trial and through our suffering with this eager expectation. I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait to see what happens. And they know what's going to happen, but they can't wait to see what happens. I wonder if that's true for me. In closing, I have these three questions to ask of us. The first one is this. Do I search and have the desire to know God's word the same way the prophets did? Like, here's the prophets. They're the ones that are the ones that spoke the words of the prophecy, and yet even speaking, they said, man, I've got to search more and more and more and more about that. The second one is this. Do we preach what the preachers preach? I don't mean me. I mean the apostles. Am I teaching of this magnificent God to all the world? There's way more to preaching than coming behind a wooden podium with a microphone. In in my day-to-day life, heralding the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ the same way the prophets did. You all have a platform. Your house, your job, your friends, your wife, your husband, your kids. You have a platform to preach the good news to people. And the last one is this. Do I long, do we long to see God's saving work the way the angels do? Man, that for me has been so convicting this week. That even now, all of heaven is peering down with this anticipation. Man, what is God going to do? What is God going to do? What is God going to do? And then it says, when God does something, it's Go back to Luke chapter 15. It says in the moment that God brings people that were far from him to himself, they look with that expectation, see that expectation, 
turn around and shout it, and there's a party that goes on for one sinner that comes to know Christ. Man, do I do that? Do I long to see God's activity in the life of other people and then talk about it in agnosium the way the angels do? And so for us, this morning, we must remember past glories. There's no better way for us to do that this morning than for uh, communion. If the deacons would come down and begin to prepare for communion. I want to read this one verse or these few verses over us. As I'm reading, if you, Larry, and you, Jerry, would fold uh, the, the, the sheet, please. says this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the wine until the day when I drink in the new, it new and with you and with my, my, in my Father's house. See, what we do the Lord's Supper for is this. We do it to be reminded of what Christ did for us. Like this is way more than some crackers and some grape juice. This today, as we close out this sermon, is a reminder for us to be remember what Christ did for us of His life, of His death on the cross, but His ultimate resurrection that gives us life. And so in these moments, as we get ready, let us be reminded of all that God has done for us and our salvation, but let us be reminded of what He has done for us through our lives, our sanctification. So it's a hard thing to ask, it's a hard thing to say, but let us be grateful in the moment of our suffering. Because we go back to last week. We have a Savior that gives us hope and a promise that will make it through Let me pray for us. God, I pray for us in this moment that we would right now that you through the Holy Spirit would speak directly to us and remind us of your greatness and your goodness. God, it's so convicting for me. Do I know your word well enough to be able to go back and walk through your redemptive work through all of history? even including me. Help us be reminded of that in this moment. God, as we come to your table, the Lord's Supper, let's begin to prepare our hearts 